0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a peach Bellini. What are you having, Jenny?
1: I'm drinking a mojito and on today's episode we're exploring the story of Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19, 1860 to Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden. She lived with her parents and older sister Emma in Fall River, Massachusetts. Sadly, Sarah died in 1863. Andrew married Abby Dufresne Gray three years later. The Bordens were also a wealthy family. Andrew was a prominent furniture and casket manufacturer before becoming a successful property developer. He owned several textile mills and a great deal of commercial property. In addition, he also served as president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Deux Free Safe Deposit and Trust Co. Andrew had a poor attitude and was widely disliked in town. Even though the family was affluent, Andrew didn't spend much money. Indoor plumbing and electricity were common for wealthy households at the time, but the Bordens' home did not have either. They did live in a more upscale community, but the wealthiest residents of Fall River, including relatives of the Bordens, lived in an area called The Hill that was further away from the city's industrial areas. Andrew's frugality was known to have Sometimes caused friction in the household, most often with Lizzie, who had aspirations to be like one of her relatives who lived on the hill. The family regularly attended church, and as a young woman, Lizzie taught Sunday school and was a member of various church and women's groups. Lizzie was quite popular and outgoing. She was attractive and had several suitors, but her father never approved. Even if Lizzie would accept a suitor outside her social class aspirations, her father rejected them as quote-unquote fortune hunters. Neither Emma nor Lizzie married. Both Lizzie and Emma lived with their father and Abby as adults, but by all accounts, they were not close. Though Abby was said to be kind, the girls referred to their stepmother as Mrs. Borden. Lizzie later shared that she felt her stepmom had married her dad for his money. The sisters were upset with their father for purchasing gifts of real estate for members of Abby's family. Emma and Lizzie demanded a rental property from their father, which they purchased for $1 and sold back to him in the summer of 1892. In May 1892, Andrew killed a number of pigeons living in his barn with a hatchet because he felt they were attracting local children. Not long before the incident, Lizzie had built a roost for the pigeons, and it's alleged that she was very upset with her father for killing them. Just a few months later, in July, a family argument got so bad that both sisters left the home and took extended trips to New Bedford, Massachusetts. Upon her return, Lizzie stayed in a Fall River boarding home for four days before going home.
0: In early August 1892, the Borton household fell violently ill. On August 3rd, Abby called for Dr. Seabury Bowen to make a visit and told him she feared poisoning. However, the doctor said it was probably due to contaminated food. That same night, John Morse, Lizzie's uncle on her mom's side, spent the night at the Bortons' house, allegedly to discuss business with Andrew. On August 4th, Andrew left home and went into town. When Andrew left just before 9 a.m., Lizzie, Abby, and the family's mate, Bridget Sullivan, were still at home doing chores and cleaning. Emma was away visiting a friend. Around 11.15 a.m., Bridget was awoken by Lizzie screaming, quote, "'Maggie, come down! Come down quick!' Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him, End quote. Andrew had been bludgeoned to death while apparently sleeping on the living room sofa. He had been struck in the head with a sharp object 10 times, and his face was mutilated almost beyond recognition. He was 69 years old. Maggie ran to get Dr. Bowen and neighborhood Adeline Churchill. Police had arrived and began to investigate the Bortons' first floor. Half an hour after finding Andrew dead, Bridget and Adeline discovered Abby's dead body in the second floor guest bedroom. She had also been bludgeoned and struck in the head 18 times. She was just 64. Police found no signs of an intruder. They also looked for a murder weapon and in the basement found two axes and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh. Curiously, they didn't find any blood anywhere except on the bodies of the victims. Abby's body was cold when she was found, but Andrews had been discovered warm, indicating that Abby was killed earlier probably at least 90 minutes earlier than her husband. Her time of death was estimated to be between 9 and 10.30 a.m. The coroner further concluded that Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack, but the first blow struck on the side of the head, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, at which time 17 more blows were directed at the back of her head. News of the gruesome killing spread across the state quickly. The Fall River Herald initially reported that the investigation centered on a quote-unquote Portuguese laborer who had visited the Borton home earlier in the morning and asked quote for the wages due to him end quote only to be told by Andrew Borton that he had no money and to quote-unquote call later with police family, journalists, and neighbors coming in and out of the house, the crime scenes quickly became contaminated. Lizzie and Bridget were also free to clean the house. No one bothered to check either woman for bloodstains and made only a cursory inspection of her room. The police were later criticized for their lack of diligence.
1: Police began to focus their suspicions on Lizzie. They found it strange that Lizzie could not recount Abby's whereabouts after 9 a.m., and they did not believe her story about being outside in the barn while Andrew was being murdered. Two days after the murders, newspapers began reporting evidence that Lizzie might have had something to do with the heinous crime. Most significantly, a clerk at S.R. Smith's drugstore in Fall River told police that Lizzie visited the store the day before the murder and attempted to purchase prusic acid, a deadly poison. On August 9th, a closed inquest into the Borden murders was held in the courtroom over police headquarters. Lizzie, Bridget, John Morris, and others were questioned. During her four hour examination, Lizzie, who was not allowed to have her lawyer present, gave confused and contradictory answers. The family doctor, who believed Lizzie was innocent, testified that after the murders, he prescribed a double dose of morphine to help her sleep. Its side effects, he claimed, could account for Lizzie's confusion. Two days later, the inquest adjourned and Lizzie was arrested. Her arrest created an uproar that quickly became national. She was represented by Andrew Jennings, the longtime attorney for the Borden family. The following day, she entered a plea of quote-unquote not guilty and was transported to the Taunton, Massachusetts jail, eight miles north of Fall River. The preliminary hearing took place in Fall River from August 25th through September 1st, 1892. Following a preliminary hearing, the judge determined she was probably guilty and should remain jailed into a superior court trial. The grand jury heard the evidence, including new evidence from family friend Alice Russell between November 7th and 21st. Alice stayed with the two Borden sisters in the days following the murders. She told grand jurors that she had witnessed Lizzie Borden burning a blue dress and a kitchen fire, allegedly because, as Lizzie explained her action, it was covered with quote-unquote old paint. Coupled with the earlier testimony from Bridget Sullivan that Lizzie was wearing a blue dress on the morning of the murders, the evidence was enough to convince grand jurors to indict Lizzie for the murders of her parents. Lizzie's trial began on June 5, 1893 in the New Bedford Courthouse before a panel of three judges. Prosecutors described Lizzie as the only person having both the motive and opportunity to commit the double murders. He also showed off the head of the axe that he claimed Lizzie used to kill her parents and presented Abby and Andrew's skulls as evidence. Lizzie fainted upon seeing the skulls. The prosecution also stressed the brutality of the crimes and Lizzie's hatred for Abby.
0: During the trial, Lizzie's attorney emphasized the close relationship she had with her father and the many church, charity, and volunteer efforts she was involved in. They stressed that the prosecution offered no murder weapon and possessed no bloody clothes. As to the prussic acid, Lizzie was a victim of misidentification, they claimed. Emma showed strong support for her sister, and testified in her defense, saying the sister did not have any ill feelings towards Abby. The family's church and the general public also shared their support for Lizzie. Lizzie did not take the stand in her own defense, and her inquest testimony was not admitted into evidence. On June twentieth, 1893, after just 90 minutes of deliberation, Lizzie was acquitted of all charges due to the prosecution's case focusing only on circumstantial evidence presented. Upon hearing the verdict, Lizzie let out a yelp of joy. Following her acquittal, Lizzie returned to the family home and continued to live with her sister, Emma. Andrew's estate was settled and found to be worth $300,000, around $9.5 in today's money. After a considerable amount was paid to settle claims by Abby's family, Lizzie and Emma inherited a significant portion of the estate, which allowed them to buy a new home together. Lizzie finally got her quote-unquote hill house, which she named Maplecroft in 1893. The Queen Anne Victorian home was about 4,000 square feet with eight bedrooms, four bathrooms, and six fireplaces. Here, they hired live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lisbeth. In her new influential neighborhood, Lizzie continued to attend the same church and hoped With her newfound wealth, she would finally fit into the elite, upper-class society to which she had long aspired. However, friends and acquaintances soon stopped talking to her, and local children played pranks on her. She was largely outcast, yet she remained in Fall River the rest of her life. Lizzie's actions did not help the situation. She never wore mourning clothes and flaunted her wealth. She brought a new carriage that was pulled by two beautiful horses, purchased fashionable and expensive clothes, and traveled to Boston, New York, and Washington, where she stayed in fancy hotels, indulged her love of the theater. Her reputation was further tarnished when she was accused of shoplifting in Providence, Rhode Island in 1897. In 1904, Lizzie Borton met actress Nance O'Neill. The two formed a strong bond, with some even speculating that they were lovers. Emma did not approve of the friendship, and after Lizzie threw a party for O'Neill and her theatrical trope at their home in 1905, Emma abruptly moved out. In 1923, Emma was found living in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire, where she had moved for health reasons and allegedly to avoid renewed publicity following the publication of another book about the murders. Emma and Lizzie never spoke again.
1: In 1926, Lizzie had her gallbladder removed and afterwards was chronically ill. She died of pneumonia in Fall River on June 1, 1927. Funeral details were not published and few attended. Emma died of kidney problems just nine days later on June 10, 1927 in Newmarket, New Hampshire. They were buried side by side near their father in the family plot in Falls River's Oak Grove Cemetery. After Lizzie's death, she left money to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, a trust for perpetual care of her father's grave, and her closest friend and a cousin. The Borden murder house still stands at 92 Second Street, today 232nd Street, serving as a bed and breakfast and museum, which provides tours. Her new hill house, located about a mile away, is still around and serves as a private residence. The double murder of Andrew and Abby Borden is still considered unsolved. Del, what do you think of this historic story?
0: I think that she is guilty. And I think that she got away with it because people couldn't wrap their heads around a woman killing her father and stepmother. I do think that it's interesting how despite all the suspicion that was put on her, she really didn't adjust her attitude to try to fit in. I think she was someone who had a vision for how her life was supposed to play out and how her life was supposed to look. And the fact that her father wasn't Letting her live that life caused her to lash out in a very violent way. And unfortunately, her stepmother also got the brunt of that. One thing I did want to mention was that there is some speculation that the reason why Abby was killed first was because Lizzie wanted to make sure that the inheritance would go to her. And the way that inheritance laws is set up, if Andrew had died first, it would have transferred to Abby first, and then Abby's family would have gotten the estate. So that's just an interesting thing that I think about, um, and definitely more evidence of Lizzie being guilty.
1: That's really interesting. I didn't know that about her. That's possibly a reason that Abby was killed first if Lizzie was the murderer. I do think she did it. No one else has a motive. She gave tons of different stories that didn't make any sense. I mean, we just talked about the sarin attacks, and Lizzie was out there trying to get poison too. And I mean, they told her no. Why didn't they tell the other people no? But that's another story. But she was out there trying to get poison, the accounts of her with the dress, and The police left her and Bridget alone for quite a while before coming back. So I think they definitely had time to dispose of the weapon, their clothes, and anything else that could have incriminated Lizzie. There is a lot to this story that we will never know. And there are so many conflicting things. Like, Lizzie... She had a good relationship with her dad. She had a good relationship with Abby. She actually didn't have a good relationship with Abby. Abby was a bad person. Abby was a good person. There's questions of whether, unfortunately, Lizzie's dad had some type of incestual relationship with her. I don't know too many details about that, but I know that is a theory that some have. Some people said that she was just really pissed off about him killing those pigeons, and she killed him for that. There's also some theories that maybe Lizzie and Bridget had some type of relationship and they killed maybe not together, but Bridget helped cover up for Lizzie, which I think happened regardless of whether or not they had a romantic relationship. But it's so fascinating that we're talking about this so many years later, and we're gonna get more into that in a second. But it's definitely one of those, like it's part of our culture now. It's everybody knows who Lizzie Borden is in America. But she definitely got away with it because of her being a woman and a rich woman and an attractive woman. And again, we'll talk about that a little more later. But yeah, it's an interesting case that has so many different elements. And like I said, there's so much we're never going to know, which is kind of unfortunate. But I think there is a lot that we can safely assume. Some stories captivate the public and become legends that have influences on our pop culture, and the story of Lizzie Borden and her parents' deaths is definitely one of them. Rope-skipping children maligned her with the sing-song verses of a popular new rhyme at the time, which was, quote, "...Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41." End quote. Richard Behrens, host of the Lizzie Borden podcast, said, quote, I think we're still fascinated by the case to this day, largely because it has all the elements of a Greek tragedy or a Victorian melodrama. And the fact that the case is unsolved gives it cultural longevity. Lizzie Borden has been elevated to an American tragedy at the same level as the sinking of the Titanic, end quote. There are many theories regarding Lizzie's potential motives, including that she was the victim of incest at the hand of her father, like we mentioned, or that she was angry with him for killing the pigeons, which we also mentioned, or simply sick of his strict and rigid ways, ready to inherit his wealth and stop living under his thumb, which we also kind of mentioned, but none can be proven and that only adds to her mystique. Lizzie's was one of the first trials in American history that both fueled and was fueled by major mass market newspapers and magazines. She was a media sensation because her trial exposed the sleazy shortcomings of high society, delighting the lower income masses. Once the media created Lizzie Borden as a persona and celebrity, the process was self-sustaining. The more Lizzie became a household name, the more newspapers people would purchase. At the time, the case was on the same level of the O.J. Simpson trial, and this was one of the first times that the news blurred with entertainment. Dr. Jean Kim, Clinical
0: Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at George Washington University, says the board and murders, quote, reflect the key moment in our modern public consciousness about the reality of violent and private families, even ones that seem outwardly affluent or normal, end quote. She went on to say, quote, murders that stay in the public imagination often are bellwethers or signposts or presidents, For key moments in our collective social consciousness, they are events that challenge the status quo for good and resist prior covering up of shameful repression. Or they shock societal norms, confirm our worst fears about ourselves, or reflect the anxieties of the error they are current, which can look back upon with more objectivity, end quote. In the Borton case, the prosecution, and in turn the media, used the trial to convey that the wealthy are not exempt from unsavory, violent behavior. More recently, a revival of interest in the Victorian era has brought more notoriety to Lizzie's case. Because the murders took place so long ago, people are detached from the trauma, adding to the level of interest. According to Leanne Wilbur, manager of the Lizzie Borton House, there are several factors that play into the crime's enduring appeal, including the fact that the primary suspect was a woman and that the murder weapon was a hatchet at the time when poisoning was the method of choice for most female Victorian killers.
1: Tell any thoughts on any of this? I think that There is
0: always a fascination with the unknown, which is why a lot of unsolved cases, even ones like this case, where we pretty much know what happened, are able to endure and able to stay within the public sphere for a very long time. I mean, this case is going on what? over 100 years, and there's other cases like that too, like Jack the Ripper, where it doesn't matter how much time it's been, if you are someone that is interested in true crime or the Victorian era, poisonings, anything like that, you probably know who Lizzie Borden is, or you have at least heard and can recognize the riddle even if you don't remember all of the specific details that go into the case. I do think that it's interesting that you talked about how the media process is self-sustaining and, you know, it just constantly feeds into itself. And I think that it was made that way because it has to, because you don't want to always rely on outside factors to keep someone going or to keep someone famous. And unfortunately, the same process that is used for positive figures as a promotion of their art is used by unsavory figures as a promotion for themselves related to the crimes that they have committed. What are your thoughts on it?
1: You're so right about unsolved stories being so like having an extra level of mystery and intrigue to them, and I think that's the same about stuff that happened hundreds of years ago too. I don't know, like another entertainment level to it, as because we can like feel so far removed which I think we have a quote on that either coming up or it already happened but it's interesting and you're right about the media being so self-sustaining and it's interesting that it happened I guess like this was one of the first ones or like the time that really like struck a chord with the nation so I guess it does only make sense that it has stayed on the public's mind for so long. I mean, there's been tons of books and movies and whatnot. I mean, we just said there someone is the host of the Lizzie Borden podcast. You can visit her house too. Like we said, it's a museum now. So definitely something that's never gonna go away. Like we've said a few times now, a lot of people didn't think Lizzie could be a killer simply because she was a woman. For many years, there was a belief that there was a natural hierarchy between the sexes. Women were considered physically weaker yet morally superior to men, which meant that they were best suited to the domestic sphere. Popular theories about women's physiological and psychological makeup took on new importance to followers of the Borden case. After detailed anatomical analysis, scientists confidently declared that the women of their era differed little from their prehistoric sisters. They spoke with assurance of women's arrested evolution. The fact they agreed lay in her reproductive capacity, which sapped vital powers that in men contributed to ever improving physique and intellect. The defects of the female anatomy included sloping shoulders, broad hips, underdeveloped muscles, short arms and legs, and poor coordination. To those who believed Lizzie innocent, evidence was abundant that no short-armed, uncoordinated weakling of a woman could swing an axe with enough force to crash through hair and bone almost two dozen times. Throughout the 1890s, nearly every issue of magazines from Popular Science Monthly to Harper's, which was actually one of Lizzie's favorite magazines, carried at least one article attesting to the gentleness, physical frailty, and docility of the well-bred American woman. Many of these articles were written in response to the growing number of women who were demanding equal rights and were written with the intention of providing women hopelessly unable to handle the sacred privileges of men. Physical and psychological frailty simply made it impossible for women to commit murder.
0: When Lizzie Borton went on trial, the entire Victorian concept of womanhood was on trial for its life. Ideal Victorian women were defined as morally pure, physically delicate and socially respectable. Lizzie benefited greatly from the prevailing stereotypes of feminine delicacy and docility. Her cause was also served by the widely accepted stereotype of the female criminal. In an article in North American Review in August of 1895, one criminologist thoughtfully provided the following description. Quote, she has coarse black hair and a good deal of it. She has often a long face, a receding forehead, jutting brows, prominent cheekbones, an exaggerated frontal angle as seen in monkeys and savage races, and nearly always square jaws. End quote. To the journalist reporting on Lizzie, there were clearly two types of women the gentle ladies of their own class and those women beneath them. Gentlemen authors believe that the womanly instincts of gentleness and love were the monopoly of upper class women. Lizzie's attorney skillfully exploited these two stereotypes the gentle young woman and the wart written murderess to their client's advantage throughout the Borton trial. Deborah Allard, a journalist at the Herald News, said, quote, I think the case has gotten so much attention because our proper Victorian ancestors couldn't fathom that someone among the upper class, especially a woman, could commit such a heinous crime. It has endured for the same reasons and because it offers something for everyone today. History, brutality, mystery, the supernatural, and even sex, end quote. Because of those preconceived notions, the public was quick to defend Lizzie. Angry letters denouncing the police flooded newspaper offices from New York to Chicago. Editorials appeared Castigating the British officers who would suspect a grieving daughter of such a crime. Americans were certain that well brought up daughters could not commit murder with a hatchet on sunny summer mornings. One quote unquote leading physician at the time explained that quote, hacking is almost a positive sign of the deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she is doing. End quote. 148 men awaited jury selection. It was assumed that all had formed opinions. They were only asked if their minds were still open enough to judge the evidence fairly. The first man claimed he could never convict a woman of a capital offense and was dismissed.
1: Women's groups supported Lizzie and protested that at trial she would not be judged by a jury of her peers because women, as non-voters, did not have the right to serve on juries. In a courtroom where men reserved all the legal power, Lizzie was not a helpless maiden. She only needed to present herself as one. Her lawyers told her to dress in black. She appeared in court tightly corseted, dressing in flowing clothes, and holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a fan in the other. It's also important to mention the importance of grieving at the time and in the media. When Lizzie went to trial much was made of her odd behavior after her father's death, her failure to grieve in a quote-unquote normal or acceptable way, and her inability to grasp the situation she was in. On slower news days, reporters would comment that Lizzie was yawning or looked bored during the trial, planting the seed that a woman exhibiting boredom by such a gory event might even be capable of murder. There's clear parallels in that regard to the Amanda Knox and Meredith Kircher case. Author Sarah Weinman said, quote, women like Lizzie make people very uncomfortable because they don't behave normally, even though there is no such thing as normal after traumatic events. And there is ambiguity, legal, morally, in the media, or otherwise about what happened, that discomfort increases, end quote. So, what are your thoughts on all this?
0: I think this is where a lot of the criticism of the body language experts come from because they really make a point to analyze every little thing that someone is doing. And if they consider it not in what they think is normal, they use it as a way to place guilt upon someone, whether that person is guilty or not. Going back to all of the stereotypes and things around whether a woman can be a killer, I think that it's one of those situations where people, especially men, are chivalrous to a fault, where... They think they are complimenting women by saying, oh, no, she can't be guilty of murder. She can't do that. But although this is a very sick way of thinking about it, women, just like men, can commit heinous crimes. There is not a crime that a man commits that a woman cannot commit. I think that you can speak to that men commit more crimes. They tend to commit more violent crimes. They tend to use more violent means of murder. But this is not even what these people were doing. They were basically saying, we see this wealthy woman, and we just couldn't fathom that she could be capable of murder. And... In addition to just the minimizing of women and removing agency, it's also just so disgusting how they are describing those individuals that don't have as much wealth. Like, oh, you know, that's for poor people. fine committed by poor people. Rich people never commit any crimes. And honestly, I especially don't take anything they believe, one, because they're wrong, and two, they clearly have other motives, such as racism, when they're describing things, like the criminologist that was talking and decided to say an exaggerated frontal angle as seen in monkeys and savage races. Hmm. I wonder what he meant by that. I I really do. Yeah. It's just, they're gross people. They have gross thoughts about women, about poor people, about minorities in general. And I can't really fault Lizzie's attorneys for using that in her favor, but it's definitely something that would be looked upon, I think more carefully in today's age than it was back then. I think that with a lot of more recent crimes committed by women, thinking about like Eileen Wuornos and others, people understand that although people want to say that women are docile and can't commit crimes, sometimes they commit the most heinous of crimes. What are your thoughts?
1: I absolutely agree. It's laughable to read some of this stuff that was like scientific findings. Like, what were they even doing to find this stuff and put it in like legitimate magazines? And Del, you touched on the racism. I know a lot of this same kind of language was used when talking about other races too and how white people were so superior. It's ridiculous and I mean, that's a, like a kind of another story for another day, but like our science and medical fields and systems really are like, have a racist history too. And I agree. I also don't blame Lizzie and her defense team for using this stereotype to her advantage And we see that now still with, you know, telling her you got to dress like this, you got to act like this when you're in court. That happens all the time. Now people get dressed to look more conservative or like uh modest, humbled, not as flashy that happens all the time. And it's part of, you know, like the narrative you have to create as a defense attorney or a prosecutor. So that's all interesting. And I think, There is some of this stereotype that women don't really commit crimes or they don't commit certain crimes still sort of in the justice system today. I know some people like to argue, you know, like women are equal and they actually have a lot more advantages than men. And one of them is because like the criminal justice system will go lighter on them and be in their favor in certain cases. But I mean, it all kind of comes back to stuff that like men made. It's not like women were really trying to say like, yes, we're all frail women, men are better than all of us. Some people, of course, felt that way. But it's not like all women were advocating to be dominated throughout their entire lives and throughout history. It's interesting, I guess, too, how all of that really comes to a head in this case and what we were talking about, too, about the stereotype of what a criminal looks like. And we've talked about this many times before about how pretty people are, you know, they have all of the good elements and ugly people have all of the bad qualities in a person. So, of course, they're going to commit a crime. And of course, a rich, pretty person isn't going to, you know, do anything bad to hurt anybody ever. It's ridiculous. But... We still do see some of this. That's, I guess, kind of how the mind works because that's subconsciously or consciously, like that's what we're taught in a lot of ways through movies, TV, you know, how things are framed in a newspaper and on um, the news. It's interesting. I, did want to say real quick I kind of like the women's groups I don't like that they supported Lizzie because she clearly did it but the women's group saying that she wasn't going to be judged by a jury of her peers because there were no women I think that's a really interesting point point. and again use that stereotype to your advantage I guess if you need to I don't think them doing that really helped her but It's an interesting statement. And I think it it does have a lot of parallels with Amanda Knox too. I thought that wasn't really something I expected to see going into all of this.
0: You know, another case that I see a lot of parallels with is Casey Anthony as well, especially since they were both found not guilty of the crime. And a lot was made of their reaction to grieving and what they were wearing, how they looked, and a lot of interest was had in their lives after the acquittal. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Lizzie Boren. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with another episode focused on the Benoit family. As always, stay safe.